Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as per usual. And there is a, a case that we want to talk about for, for two segments uh, today, uh, John, that we've talked about before on this program. And it's Loper Bright Enterprises v. Gina Raimondo in her official capacity as Secretary of Commerce. This is the case that the Supreme Court granted cert on uh, in order to uh, address the potential to overrule Chevron. So it's, the, a, it's a blockbuster of administrative law, right? A, absolutely a blockbuster. The question presented is whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least clarify that statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly grounded elsewhere in the statute does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference uh, to the agency. And the reason why it makes sense for us to talk about it this week is that the brief for petitioners was submitted uh, to the Supreme Court uh, by Paul Clement, uh, counsel of record uh, in the case. And of course, this is the case brought uh, by uh, Cause of Action uh, on behalf of some fishermen. And John, you're very well, well familiar with this case because you were at Cause of Action. And, and they, they signed these clients up in 2015. This has been a long time coming when I was there. And they brought cases for fishermen even before that, the Gaithel case. This is, this is how a nonprofit has spotted a problem and worked all, almost a decade to get this here. This is their last um, third-party client, and Paul Clement jumps in to take it. Uh, but I think that uh, James Valbo, Eric Bolander, and Ryan Mulvey deserve a shout-out. Uh, absolutely, and they're the attorneys listed on the brief from, uh, from Cause of Action. Uh, and, you know, I uh, uh, in reading this, this brief, I was pleasantly surprised, John, because when I first went through it, I just sort of glanced at the table of authorities to see, you know, if if our fearless leader Philip Hamburger uh, was cited, and, and he was cited in in one place in an appropriate uh, in an appropriate way for his Chevron bias article. But then, as I actually uh, sat sat down to uh, to read uh, the brief uh, earlier this week, I discovered that it is chock full of references to concepts that Philip has been drilling into our heads from from day one. Uh, and explain really why uh, the, the, the desire to overturn Chevron deference is at the heart of what the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, has been uh, striving for uh, as well. And uh, and there are some some particular uh, ideas that even you know even where and I don't mean to suggest any impropriety here, but there are places even where Philip's ideas are, uh, or at least maybe I should put it this way: ideas I've learned from Philip are discussed in significant detail where he uh, isn't cited as well. And that could be just because other scholars are cited who have also talked about that issue, or maybe some of these ideas are just in the zeitgeist right. and, and folks may not even realize or, that Philip is- the Or they've leaked into the lower courts. That's right. That's right. Uh, and we've seen that quite a bit uh, as well. And, and John, you tweeted uh, this this week that uh, that several- NCLA cases are mentioned here as well. And I missed one. So I, I'm on VEC tweets and I, and I looked through it and I noticed that um, they have quotes from a because it's, it's Gorsuch uh, saying why the case should take uh, Buffington, excuse me, is Gorsuch as well. And then Mexican Gulf. 
So, but you spotted another one that I had forgotten because I have a similarly named case in a previous life, which is <laughs> oh, Baldwin Baldwin v. United States, which was actually a Brand X case where NCLA was seeking uh, seeking cert, and cert was denied. But uh, Justice Thomas had dissented from the denial of cert with a fantastic uh, with, with a fantastic opinion, talking about or dissental talking about uh, the fact that we've we've come to the brink of administrative absolutism, and he was inviting his colleagues to take a step back and. Uh, and so the fact that that made its way uh, in here uh, as well ma- made me feel like you know, the, the hard work we've been doing the last uh, five or six years, John, uh, has really borne fruit because the finger, you know, NCLA's fingerprints are all over this, even though this isn't our case because of all the, the citations to, to other cases we've been involved in and so forth. And, and the point of some of that is to make precedent that other people can use. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, and, and so hats off, uh, to, to Paul Clement, not just because, uh, you know, he's citing uh, us or Philip Hamburger or our cases. This is a really well done brief. It's fantastic. And I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, not surprised. I mean, everything Paul does is a pleasure, pleasure to read. He's a fantastic advocate, but, um, uh, but I just, sort of every page has something on it where I was found myself nodding. Yes, this is the right way to make this argument, uh, which is, which is always uh, fun to see. So we could really, you know, jump in, uh, anywhere, I suppose, but the, um, uh, you know, the, you know, even the, the factual and procedural background has, has some interesting things, but since we've talked about this, uh, case before, uh, I thought maybe we, we could skip over some of the factual and procedural right. background and, and just talk about uh, some of the arguments uh, that are made here. So uh, the, the... I think I think the only thing we should say is this is the case where uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service has uh, said that these observers who go on the boat to make sure you're catching fish correctly, that they're going to be paid for by the fishermen and not by the government. It's that case. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, and it's the same as the relentless case that, right. that John uh, argued up in the first circuit and that we also have a, a pending cert petition uh, on that on the exact same issue uh, at the at the Supreme Court. So the the argument uh, begins by saying that uh, Chevron impermissibly transfers both Article three judicial power and Article one legislative power to Article two executive agencies. And that's. That's absolutely correct. That is, I think, the heart of the problem with what Chevron does. It takes something that the Constitution makes a judicial power that the Federalist Papers talk about as being a judicial power, that Marbury versus Madison talks about as being a judicial power, that the that the APA Section 706 in 1946, Congress said, well, wait a minute, courts, you're getting you're straying away from this idea. So go back to it. De novo review for for these sorts of questions and when they by did the, the judiciary. And when they did the APA, Congress looked at how administrative law had been done up until that point, and they believed that that was the proper way to do it. So it wasn't like they made it up even out of their head. That was a that was a well-considered statute about that issue. A well-considered statute and a statute that was really written in reaction to excesses of the previous decade, uh, decade plus uh, of of the courts sort of, uh, you know, I, I guess you could, you could, Yes, Franklin. Yes, Franklin. Yes, Franklin. <laughs> That's right. There was a little too much deference to the executive uh, in the 1930s and, and early 1940s. So, uh, so Congress, uh, Congress wanted to set that, uh, set that aright, and and did thought they did so. I think in the Administrative Procedure Act. But the second thing 
and, and I don't know if you want to say anything more about that, uh, John, but the, the second thing I was going to mention, and, and I was really, really pleased to see this make it up so early in the summary of argument, uh, is that uh, the brief says that Chevron runs afoul of the due process clause by requiring courts to systematically place a thumb on the scale against the citizenry. And that, of course, is an argument near and dear to our hearts. It's the uh, at the core of the argument in Philip Hamburger's Chevron bias article. And it's really the it, it is a fact about Chevron and a legal argument against Chevron that the court has never grappled with. And that's one of the reasons why we think that it's important for the court to to grapple with it here. The other reason we think it's important for the court to grapple with it here uh, is that if you start tweaking with some of the other arguments about Chevron, whether it's uh, the stare decisis arguments or the APA 706 arguments or what have you, some of those things might let you sort of uh, trim at the at the margins. But the fact that this runs afoul of the due process clause, that there is a, a deep constitutional problem with Chevron deference is, uh, I think, the main reason why the court needs to stop trimming or stop sort of dealing with the uh, the effects of its bad precedent and just overturn Chevron, just sort of uh, uh, you know cut ties once and for make a clean break. I think is how the brief puts it at another another point uh, in here. I think that's absolutely right, and it's that running afoul of the due process clause. And in, in case it's not clear to somebody why this runs afoul of the due process clause, the uh, how how Philip has put it, uh, you know, in his work is that it's requires courts to make a pre-commitment to favoring the legal interpretation of one of the parties uh, in front of the court. And in fact, the most powerful of parties, the federal government. And the the fact that it does that uh, is really, I mean, folks talk about it being a separation of powers violation and, and so forth. But the, but the core due process problem is that you are not getting a fair trial in a lot, whether you're suing the government or the government uh, suing you, either way, Chevron deference currently gets applied in the government's favor in the case of an ambiguity. And if that happens, then you're not getting a fair trial. And I think that the court has never come to grips with that state of uh, of Chevron, and it needs to in this case. I think I think that's right. And and I'll, I'll say another thing. I'm I'm uh, you may get to it, but what that does also is is that you could have relied in directing your actions on case law about what a statute means, but then the administrative state changes the view of the statute and what the regulations are without with, with and and you've 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 been perfectly lawful yeah. under the previous uh, iteration, yeah, yeah, understanding, and then suddenly you're you're not you're not in accord with the law. Yeah, that's right, and and. If the rule of law stands for nothing else, it has to stand for the idea that the the law has to be defined and publicized and so forth in such a way that you can conform your conduct in advance to avoid the cut of the law. That is the whole point of the rule of law. And Chevron undermines that because Chevron, uh, as John just said, allows agencies to change the meaning of the law after you've already acted. And that is that is not something that... Uh, you know, that comports with the rule of law. And it's a, it, it really is a due process violation uh, as well, which is why I think that you, you were chiming in with that, John. Um, we're going to come back and, and talk about this uh, further in our, in our next segment, because there are quite a few other arguments 
uh, that the Loper Bright folks make against Chevron, and we want to make sure that we give adequate time uh, to discuss those. So stick with us, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. We are talking about Loper Bright Enterprises v. Romando, the Chevron case that's pending at the U.S. Supreme Court. Cert has been granted, and the brief for petitioners has been filed by former Solicitor General Paul Clement on behalf of the Cause of Action Institute and their clients, uh, Loper Bright Enterprises and other other fishermen. Uh, the uh, the next uh, sort of objection to Chevron that I wanted to talk about, uh, John, is the fact that uh, thanks to Chevron, and this is quoting the brief, Congress does far less than the framers envisioned and the executive branch does far more. The brief points out that, that roughly half of Congress can count on friends in the executive branch to tackle controversial issues via executive action without the need for compromise or bicameralism and presentment. And that's absolutely right. Congress has a very, I think it's been called finely wrought a procedure in other Supreme Court cases for having laws passed. It's hard to do. It's hard to pass a law. That's deliberate. And if you allow this sort of end run on that bicameralism or presentment uh, and presentment process, then you are undermining the difficulty with which laws are supposed to proliferate. And, and like student loan debt, right? That is something that one half likes. And so they've gone to their friends in the administration who then does something that's probably unconstitutional and then, and, and, and is, and then, um, They've won for this little bit of time, but the problem never gets fixed because Congress doesn't address it. Congress doesn't address it, and it never went through the finely wrought procedure of bicameralism and presentment. Uh, they, they pretend that it did because they rummaged through some old statute, but I guarantee you that, that uh, the 1965 Congress passing the Higher Education Act was not envisioning a future Department of Education that didn't even exist yet that would have the power to forgive half a trillion dollars in student loan debt uh, and uh, and I think notions to the contrary are, are fanciful. But, um, uh, but I think that this brief gets it exactly right that, uh, that, that there's this effort to transfer authority. And, the, uh, and it, it really um, creates a, a problem. And this goes back to something that we talked about on this program before, where the law on important and divisive issues changes radically with every change of administration. Again, that's a quote from the brief, but it's also, that's the exact topic of Philip Hamburger's Wall Street Journal article that we talked about earlier this year, where he said, look, the fault of the court for some of the, uh, some of the, the, uh, the, the tumult in society uh, is because it's allowing these, it's allowing the stakes of these presidential elections to be so great because administrative agencies can turn over so much law with every presidential election. And so that's the same notion that is being uh, teed up here in the brief. So I was happy to see that. And then they talk about the, uh, the fact that under current Chevron doctrine, that 
silence can be construed as an agency empowering delegation and that that's at odds with sort of normal administrative law rules that agencies only enjoy the power that Congress has given to them. And I guess one way of thinking about this, John, is to say that for administrative agencies, silence is golden because yeah. under, you know, under current, <laughs> under current law, if there's an, if there's silence, then that gets construed as an ambiguity and they can insert pretty much whatever they want there and get, and get deference to it. It's, it's maybe not, maybe I'm overstating that slightly, but just slightly. Yeah. C- Congress should be seen and not heard. Right. <laughs> from, from the point of these administrative standpoint of these administrative agencies, that seems to be the case. And so what you, what you get is lawmaking being done in the executive branch rather than in the legislative branch where it belongs and where the constitution puts it. In fact, article one, section one, the very first substantive provision after the preamble gives Congress the legislative power, not the executive branch. And yet Chevron essentially enables that lawmaking uh, to occur in the executive branch. Uh, the other sort of point that that's married to this in the brief is that uh, Congress is is really transferring judicial power as well, because rather than the Article Three courts making a decision about what the meaning of the law is, that capability with with the deference doctrine is being transferred to the uh, executive agencies. And what this brief points out, and what uh, something Philip and I have been talking a lot about lately, is that Congress doesn't have the judicial power to begin with. The Constitution gives that judicial power to Article 3, not to Article 1. So you can't say that, you can't point to Congress and say, well, this is what Congress wants you. Chevron can't rely on a delegation from Congress and say that Congress, as you'll sometimes hear, Congress implicitly delegated this power to the agency. Well, Congress can't implicitly delegate what it does not have, and it does not have judicial power. So it couldn't explicitly delegate judicial power from Article 3 to Article 2. So it certainly can't implicitly delegate uh, judicial power from Article 3 to Article 2. And yet that's exactly what Chevron facilitates. It facilitates these decisions, these judicial decisions about uh, the law being made by executive agencies rather than uh, by our independent judiciary. And that's, uh, that's a huge problem. You know, the, the other thing that they spend a lot of time on in this brief, uh, John, is explaining why Chevron is not entitled to stare decisis uh, effect. And for the, for the non-lawyers why, why out there- Why do they have to do that? Explain. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. well, for the non-lawyers out there, stare decisis is, is the idea that, that settled, uh, settled ideas should remain settled. Settled cases, settled principles should remain settled uh, without very good reasons for, for changing it. And that's, that's a, a pretty strong principle in the statutory context that, that once a, the meaning of a statute is decided, Congress can come back and change that by, by changing the law. But the courts are, are loath to, uh, to, to flip over the, the meaning of statutes. It's weaker in the constitutional context because really, uh, absent a constitutional amendment, a, a, you know, a self-correction by the court is the only way to, uh, to overturn a constitutional interpretation. But as this brief points out, what we're talking about here is neither a statutory provision nor a constitutional provision. What we're talking about is an interpretive methodology and interpretive methodologies don't get stare decisis effect at all. Uh, and I thought there were some, some very interesting you know, arguments along uh, these lines, but one of them that I thought was interesting was, uh, and they, they quote uh, a scholar named Randy Kozell for this. I hadn't seen this article before, but the quote says that, it, that asking a justice to give presumptive fidelity 
to a wide-ranging methodology with which she disagrees is asking too much, unquote. I thought that was really interesting that it's one thing to say this, this case was decided before you got here. You have, to, you have to stick to that statutory interpretation, that stare decisis. It's quite something else to say in this whole range of cases, you have to use this certain methodology. Well, let's, let's try another one. Some people believe that, that um, st- the statutory history should be used, you know, and some like Scalia hate it. Well, if they if they passed a uh, uh, or excuse me, if they ruled on something and said, we always must look at the statutory history right. and every judge had to do that, even when they think it's it's not the way to do things, that would be similar and people would be screaming about it. That's right. Or, or you could say the same thing for textualism or originalism yeah. or what have you. If, if any of those things were binding on on judges, that would be a methodology and that would be different. And so uh, the brief argues, I think, convincingly, convincingly that Chevron is a methodology and so that uh, the stare decisis effect doesn't doesn't exist. But the brief doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, well, look, you can look at all the different reasons why uh, things get overruled because there, there are sort of justifications for departing from stare decisis. And it says that all of those uh, apply here. Um, first of all, there, there is no risk of upsetting expectations. Uh, it's... Um, uh, the only well, first of all, Chevron undermines expectations because it allows the law uh, to change. So that's one reason it doesn't undermine expectations. But you also have uh, the fact that the the expectations here would be the expectations of the agency, not the expectations of the uh, of the regulated parties. And and there's there's or no, the citizen, right? Or the citizen, and and so that that doesn't carry the same sort of weight. Uh, it's also a judge made rule, which is another reason why you, you wouldn't have stare decisis the way you would for something passed by Congress. Uh, and then uh, the, you know the president's shortcomings uh, have been pointed up again and again and again, and that's one of the fun things we started off talking about was all of the uh, all of the cases like uh, like Mexican Gulf and all of the judges like uh, you know, Judge Oldham there, like Judge Kethledge in the Valent case, like uh, another one of our fearless leaders, Janice Rogers Brown, uh, the head of our uh, board of advisors in the Waterkeeper uh, v. EPA case back in 2017, she had weighed in against Chevron deference uh, as well. So there is this, this real catalog of judicial giants that have talked about how Chevron is, uh, is egregious, not just wrong, but egregiously wrong. And I think it's fun too, that the brief goes to the trouble of picking up law review articles written by Justice Kavanaugh, but not just Justice Kavanaugh, also Justice Kagan. Uh, in a 2001 article on Chevron's non-delegation doctrine uh, and, and quotes, uh, quotes some of you know, her reasons why uh, Chevron uh, was not uh, um, maybe as, as well-founded as its uh, proponents would, would have one believe. The, um, and, and I will say this. It's interesting because so many of the justices, Kagan, Roberts, uh, and well, and Kavanaugh come out of the executive branch and have always loved it. Yeah, that's right. And and, and come out of the D.C. Circuit, which has always loved uh, Chevron as as well. I lost count of how many judges we have on the court from the D.C. Circuit, but I guess it's Roberts, Jackson, Thomas would would be yeah. a, you know wouldn't be one that right. that, that goes for it, but uh, but but quite a quite a few of them. Uh, the uh, you know the other thing that that maybe doesn't get quite the uh, the treatment here that it I'm going to predict we'll get in the amicus brief that NCLA will be filing next week <laughs> is this idea that uh, that there's an abdication of the judicial duty here 
when uh, when judges rely on on Chevron because uh, that that is quoted here. Justice Gorsuch is quoted for that idea from his Tenth Circuit opinion in Gutierrez Brizuela, uh, but it's not uh, uh, you know it's not uh, strongly uh, it, it's not strongly um, uh, you know included in here. So I think that that's you know something maybe we can talk about uh, down the road. Uh, John and I have decided we're going to go ahead and do a third segment on this. So stay tuned. Uh, we have more to say, and we'll be right back uh, with even more ideas about what's terrific about the brief for petitioners in Loper Bright.